0: Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. With support from the North Face, never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration.
1: Uh stop video. It says I'm built in. It Looks like um
0: this is Mikey for interview, April, 2020.
2: Yeah.
1: That's interesting.
3: Give me a sec. Word-winning
0: cinematographer doesn't know how to turn the camera on.
1: I haven't had to Zoom yet, so.
0: You haven't Zoomed? You've made it this far into pandemic uh, life without Zoom? Uh,
1: I've done I've done Google, Google, whatever, and I've Hangouts. done Microsoft, yeah. Yeah,
0: it yeah, actually fits. Uh, I tell you, I did that speaker series or town hall thing with John Kerry or whatever, and they, uh, they only use Skype because it's way more secure. Apparently, for former Secretaries of State, they care about that shit. <laughs> well, you know,
2: we're super high tech at duct tape the
0: mirror.
1: Okay, I'm going gonna, gonna to disconnect <laughs> and restart here
0: real quick. Yeah,
2: okay. cool. Chapter two Top, Top Twist.
1: Uh, my name's Mikey Schaefer. I started in uh, kind of through Boy Scouts with my older brother when we were you know, young teenagers. I was 13. And um, that, that, quickly actually evolved to trying to get to Yosemite to try to climb El Cap when I was 15. And um, literally the day I graduated high school, I packed up my truck and drove to Yosemite and spent the whole summer there. And then more or less, I've spent almost every climbing season there since then. So that was 22 years ago.
0: So how do you learn how to put up first ascent?
1: I grew up in Tacoma, Washington. And the guys that I met just hanging out around the climbing shop, um, that was sort of the epicenter of, of climbing there. It was just, you'd actually just go to the climbing shop and hang out and read magazines. And um, some of the older guys took me under their wing and they were some of the local route developers and guidebook authors. And for these guys, like climbing and for doing first ascents were sort of the same thing, right? Like that's what you did. Like to me, when I grew up, it was kind of just like oh yeah that's like that's just climbing you know it was just like oh cool like we're gonna go and like go out to frenchman's coulee and find some routes to do and like, that was so normal mikey went on to establish new routes all around the world people that are into first ascents realize that it is it's not a limitless sort of commodity you know it's a finite resource um and you have to start going farther and farther from the road um, to more obscure crags, and often the routes start to require more cleaning and more work, so there's there's less stuff to climb now, you know, because a lot of it's been, been climbed.
0: Particularly in Yosemite, where we left off last chapter.
1: You know, people walk out into El Cap Meadow, and they don't even turn around to look at Middle Cathedral. You know, they just stare up at El Cap. I've learned that that's a pretty good area to look for a first ascent. You know, it's like, if everybody's looking one direction, Turn around and look the other direction, you know, because that's probably where there's more potential.
2: Middle Cathedral is like a brooding younger sibling. It's like the star quarterback's little brother dressed in black and listening to the cure. Near the very top, Mikey spied a beautiful panel of golden granite.
1: You just look up and there's no bolts, there's no chalk. I mean, it's a blank canvas, if you will, right? You just are like, okay, well, am I gonna go left? Am I gonna go right? Like, and so it's it it feels like really creative in a way i would always invite people but nobody really wanted to to go up there and and because there's not a lot of climbing when you go do these things often you're sitting there hanging on your harness and you're belaying and you know people want to go climbing they don't want to go toil up on this wall and it's hard for them to understand kind of the the end result is going to be worth it
0: so mikey went alone self-belaying up the 2,000 foot face there were some cracks that he followed but mostly it was face climbing so it
2: meant having to drill bolts for protection. The walls of Yosemite are wilderness, so you can't go up there with a power drill where you'd just be able to do that in a few minutes. You have to do it by
1: hand with a hammer
2: and a hand drill.
1: It's a, it actually becomes like sort of almost like this like meditative, like rhythmic sort of thing. This like. The tap tap twist, the tap tap. I mean, it's that hammer strike, like tap tap twist, tap tap twist. It's that tap, there's twist. like a monotonous sound to it. Tap tap twist, tap tap twist. Tap, it gets kind of deep. You get a little lost in the in the, the sound of it in a way, you know. Tap it, tap twist. It tap, takes tap, so tap, long. It is just like a little like, oh, what am I doing tap, up twist. here, tap, you know? Tap, and tap, you're tap, as you're thinking, as you're just twist. hitting, swinging the hammer. Tap tap twist. Tap tap twist. Tap tap twist.
2: A straightforward hand-drilled bolt placement for someone with a lot of experience might take a bare minimum of about 20 minutes of constant work, tap, tap, twist, tap, tap, twist, over and over again. A more difficult bolt placement might take the better part of a day.
1: There's an 11 plus slab pitch and I was by myself that day. And it's kind of this like down climb, traverse, and then you kind of got to punch it. And I couldn't tell you how many times I whipped off, you know, trying to get into the position. And I would like drill for like a little bit and just be like, oh my God, oh my God. And then like literally like take the drill out and then like would fall off, you know. And eventually you get the drill bit in deep enough that you like grab the drill bit. So to rest. So so maybe once you know, once the drill bit's in three eighths of an inch or or a little over a half of an inch, you can just choke up on the drill bit and like grab it like a hold. And then like it allows you to at least shake out a hand and like sort of shake out a foot. And then you sort I would get back into the stance. Again, it's like another 20 taps or 30 taps, and then I would have to like grab the drill bit and shake out. Yeah, I it's one of those moments you kind of I was questioning my own sanity of like what the hell am I doing up here? You know, like, this is so absurd. Over the course of two and a half years, Mikey would
2: spend 60 days bolting, cleaning, and figuring out the moves on the 20 pitches of climbing. When finally linked together, the route would become father time, grade six, 513. It was the first time in 20 years that anyone had established a new independent line of that length in Yosemite. So what do you get out of an experience
0: like that?
1: For me, it was, it was a culmination of so much of my climbing to do that thing. I feel like that I kind of really become like a valley climber. I left a route. I left a mark, you know, and, and I've put a lot of my life into climbing. It's a really important thing. It's, you know, the most influential thing in my life outside of my family. I I think we all have a, a slight desire to be remembered and so to be able to do something that, you know, when climbers go and do that route, they, they sort of think of me. I mean, I guess that that feels nice, you know, that, that to me, it, it just makes me feel good that I went out there and I, I tried hard. I, I did good work, I guess, and I, I created a, you know, a route and an experience that others get to enjoy. And um, that's important to me.
2: The online climbing guide and community center mountain project lists about 200,000 routes in the U.S. alone. Some of those routes are big, intimidating lines like father time. Some are accessible, well-bolted moderates. Some are boulder problems. Some classics. Others, not worth doing. 200,000 of them, though. That number likely represents about tens, if not hundreds of millions of hours of human effort to establish, create, clean, equip, and climb a new route. In only the rarest of situations, was anyone paid to create those routes, right? That doesn't really happen. Most route developers are pumping hard-earned money into gear and bolts. So there's no fortune. There's also no fame. Maybe there are a few, half a dozen maybe, climbers that have achieved any sort of mainstream spotlight for their first ascents. In the end, all that money and all that time gets left up on a cliff
0: for others to enjoy. Sometimes it's easy to forget that behind every one of those roots, there's a person. Which is actually kind of crazy to think about. I'm just thinking about Red Rock. I'm like, fuck, that's a lot of roots. It's like, yeah.
2: Today, a young woman from New York City and a Jesuit priest fall in love over a shared passion for adventure... Climbing's puritanical thought leaders rail against the heresy happening in Sin City, and we learn that the best ideas often come from
0: outsiders. Welcome to Chapter 2. Today we will be talking about First ascents with Joanne Uriasti. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. And this is Climbing Gold.
3: When I was 15, I read a story by Dave Roberts about Alaskan mountaineering, and it struck a very deep chord within me. So after 15 minutes, I had such a strong reaction. I said, I'm going to commit my whole life to climbing. It was like, almost like a biblical calling where everything just came together. My name is Joanne Uriasti, I'm 68 years old, and I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I did not have an athletic background, my family was like more intellectual, very sedentary, uh, definitely not risk-takers risk at all. And when I had this like pivotal moment, everything was geared towards climbing mountains that were big, untraveled, first sense this is what I said, and this is what I did.
2: At first, Joanne would ride the train out of the city, tell her parents she was going hiking, when really she was slowly building skills to tackle bigger objectives in the hills.
3: And I taught myself to read a map and just launch into the woods. I get lost, but that was like part of the whole adventure. I was 18 and I started my first semester. This was Cornell University. And I went to the outing club And they told me, well, there are a couple of real climbers here at this university. And one of them is climbing in the gunks this coming weekend. So I put out my finger, hitchhiked to the gunks, which my parents told me was very dangerous to do. I went there and I met George. He decided to take me climbing.
0: Was he already an experienced climber when you guys met?
3: Yeah. No, he was a badass. So I, I met him in October of 1970. The winter came early that year. I bought an $11 Ushenbrenner ice axe, which was ninety seven meters long. We brought it down to a machine shop and had it bent. I filed notches into the, um, into the ice axe, and then I shortened it. So all by hand. And then we went ice climbing. That winter, that first winter of 70 to 71, we climbed all of the gullies, on in Huntington Ravine under very difficult conditions, most of the time with, with over 100 mile an hour winds. That winter was like very intense. Other people actually died. There was no rescue available in these days. I mean, basically. So you had to be very conscientious about starting small and gaining a true knowledge of what you could do. Then I started climbing in the gunks. George had me start leading. And in those days, you had a rack of peat pants. Also, the other thing is that I realized that I had to like get my body strong.
2: So let's hold up for a second. I think it's worth providing a little bit of context because it's easy to forget what a different time this was in an um, in athletic sense, in a cultural sense in our country for women.
0: Yeah. How old is Joanne? Is she like 70?
2: She's 69.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. That's actually the exact same age as my mom.
2: It was a different world for our moms at that stage. Uh, At that time, Cornell was actually one of the few Ivy League schools that was co-ed for undergrads. Um, The landmark Title IX law, which would basically force universities to create women's sports teams on a scale of men's teams, uh, would not pass until 1972. And here's a little kicker that to me is crazy, but the first time a woman ran a formal marathon was 1967 when Catherine Switzer entered the boston marathon she only filled out her initials on the entry sheet because there was no i mean it was just only men could run the marathon and two miles into the course the race director repeatedly assaulted her until her coach and boyfriend fought him off she finished the race
0: that that is crazy to think that the first women's marathon was that recent okay so let's get back to joanne
3: It was unknown as to how strong a woman could be. One of the tips I got was to hang onto the um, sprinkler system in my dorm. And so every time I walked by it, I would like jump up and grab the pipe and try to do a pull-up. After that first winter of ice climbing, then I could do a pull-up. And then I started nurturing my pull-ups so I could do 10. And then I would always do like five sets of 10. And I got strong. We went to um, New Hampshire, we climbed the Whitney Gilman, the Sierras, and we went to Yosemite, the Bugaboos and the Tetons and did classic roots there. So classic roots were like ingrained in my mind as things that were something that struck a very, very deep sense of reverence within me.
0: I just don't even know what to say to all this. This is perhaps the most unusual introduction to climbing of all time. Like I don't even know. I don't know what to do with this. This is. Was,
3: I know It was crazy. I was passionate about climbing mountains.
0: No, you've completely blown my mind, and I, I don't know if I've ever felt so light duty. I'm just like, oh man, I grew up climbing in the climbing gym, and you just like all the way to the gungs. Yeah,
3: no, but it's all it's all about when when you when you got the bug when when you. You know, you got this fantastic feeling that you wanted to do it. And then it became a passion.
0: Wait, and so were you stuck, still technically in university for all this?
3: Yeah. My dad passed away when I was 17, so it was just my mom. And she never really caught on. She just <laughs> thought I was like having fitness in the great outdoors. And she thought that was a very good value. She actually sent me to Peru with, with George. And we were trying to tackle the, a first ascent on the north face of Huandoy which is one of the major peaks in Peru, in the Cordillera Blanca. And we got high on it. But we, we were sick. I got Giardia. We didn't quite make it to the summit. But we had some uh, just incredible experiences.
0: So are you saying that your mother sent you on an expedition to Peru in <laughs> she, 1972? Well,
3: well she gave, Let's put it this way. She gave me enough money to support my college. But I was extremely frugal, so I was able to save enough for for these activities.
0: Wow! And so, what was George doing at that time? Was he also at university? Or
3: yeah, yeah, he was studying for his PhD. And actually, when I met George, he was an ordained uh, Jesuit priest. Really? Oh, you didn't know that?
0: <laughs> Wait, so so how did uh yeah explain that?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look. Back in those days, you didn't have, like, a large choice of climbing partners. So if you had a climbing partner who wanted to go and do, like, badass things, then you hooked up with that climbing partner. So, like, there was nobody else that would do this. So George and I hooked up, and obviously, after a certain amount of time, we started becoming a couple, and he had to make that difficult decision whether he wanted to keep being a priest or whether he wanted to not be a priest. So... He made so, that decision. Yep.
0: So you're saying that you dragged George out of the priesthood in order to do first yes. ascents with you around the world. Yes.
3: <laughs> I guess that's what happened.
0: Well, you definitely did get some fitness in the great outdoors.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is that is outrageous. Yeah. I, just, I just can't believe all those.
2: After the break, we head to Sin City. And Joanne and George find
0: their life's work. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete tested and expedition proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Coros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Coros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-pitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. <laughs> if you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to koros.com and use the code Gold to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S
3: this is the one state that attracts like a magnet and whether they come by car rail or circle the city and drop in by plane their eyes pop wide open with their first glimpse of las vegas
2: early 1970s vegas a bloated elvis presley is in residence on the strip the sequence and jumpsuits are in full effect um, it's the same time as Hunter S. Thompson is carrying his gonzo journalism to the edges in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It was an era of excess. Alex, you live in Vegas. like It's a place people don't necessarily think of as, as a place to go if you're an outdoors person.
0: I live in Vegas because I think it's the best outdoor recreation in the country. Full stop. I mean, I think it's the best year-round climbing. I think the best access to... to to adventures in the mountains, to going mountain biking, all those kinds of things. You know, basically you're never more than a 15 minute drive from total open desert, you know, where you can just go and have full on wild adventures. But it's funny because nobody associates that with Vegas. I mean, anyone you talk to assumes that Vegas is all about the casinos and the gambling and, you know, tourism, things like that. But the outdoor recreation is incredible. The Strip is an international destination and the climbing is an international destination. And those two worlds could not be more separated. You know, they're even though they're only 20 miles apart, I mean, they, they're completely different worlds. In
2: 1974, George took a job at UNLV. He got his green card. The couple married and moved. They began exploring the towering, mysterious sandstone cliffs to the west of town, known as Red Rock. The consensus of the few California climbers who had visited was that the rock sucked.
3: Nobody climbed in Red Rock. Yeah, Red Rock was something that was just a pile of rocks, like things that people thought were just a pile of crap.
2: At that point, you could probably count the number of climbers in Vegas on one hand. One of them was Joe Herbst, who was a pioneer of the area. He climbed the biggest features, and had often followed the obvious crack systems. The Uriastis repeated some of his routes, but if they wanted to see new terrain, they'd have to start creating their own.
0: Were you drawn to doing a first ascent or was it just because there weren't any other routes in the canyons and you had to do first ascents?
3: I think it's 50-50, really. That's a very good question. Yeah, if we wanted to have more routes, we had to do first ascents.
2: In chapter one, we discussed the fact that climbing, a lot of times it has more in common with creativity than it does with sports. It's like art, but with lots of pull-ups. And in Red Rock, the Uriastis had found their canvas. Out in the brown expanse of sandstone, they saw their own unique vision for climbing.
3: When you have a really, really, really good thing going, you just drink it up. You don't really question it. You're not aware of it. You don't have perspective. The desert was a place that people disdained, climbers disdained it, everybody hated it, and we loved it. So we're fine. You know, we're just like, no problem.
2: Climbing in the early 70s was changing. At that stage, everyone used pitons, and you pounded pitons into the rock with a hammer for protection, and it was slowly eroding, destroying the climbs. And for the first time, climbers had begun to view rock as a finite resource. In 1972, legendary climbers Yvon Chouinard and Tom Frost began selling chalks. It was like new technology. It's super basic, but it was pretty radical then. They were these new metal wedges that required no hammer, you wedge them into a crack, and they were easily removed from the rock. It was branded as clean climbing. This was the future. In the 1972 Shenard Catalog, California climber Doug Robinson penned an essay called The Whole Natural Art of Protection. This essay would lay out a framework, almost moral guidelines, for how climbers should approach new routes moving forward. Robinson wrote, but every climb is not for every climber. The ultimate climbs are not democratic. The fortunate climbs protect themselves by being unprotectable and remain a challenge that can only be solved by boldness and commitment, backed solidly by technique. The basic idea laid out was grand. Climbers must rise up to the challenge of the natural world rather than using tactics to bring the natural world down to the climber. In the catalog's opening forward, Frost and Chouinard present the new practice as almost a spiritual and moral pursuit. It had an instant impact on Joanne and George and every other serious climber in the States. Robinson had just written the new climbing gospel, and it was only a matter of time before the Zealots showed up.
3: Okay, so so we're doing a progression. We did uh, rainbow buttress, we did kaleidoscope cracks, no bolts. Okay, so now my mind is jumping to frogland. So on frogland...
2: These are roots Joanne and George put up.
3: We're up there and we're placing a couple bolts, not very many. Now, it, some of the bolts that you see today were placed in more modern times. But on frogland, a couple of bolts were placed. But even that was considered very controversial, very, very... Not with the rules.
2: But the rules, they didn't really seem suited to the soft sandstone of red rock. The big eye-catching lines weren't the perfect crack systems that define climbing in places like Yosemite. They were big open faces connected by crack systems. And the open faces didn't lend themselves to protecting with nuts and chocks.
0: And so they kind of had to drill more bolts because they didn't want to get injured, which is totally fair. Uh, you know, they're basically up there having huge adventures on these big walls with nobody around to rescue them. You know, it makes sense that they want to do it safely and and make sure that, that they don't get injured, uh, particularly in Red Rock, where the rock is so friable. And, and you know, it's scary to quest into new terrain because the holds break off unexpectedly all the time. So
2: they were really left with a the conundrum. They could spend their time climbing low angle cracks filled with sand and bushes that nobody would ever really want to climb. Um, or they could realize their vision out on the faces. It would just mean going against the norms of the day. And Frogland had already raised eyebrows, but what they were about to do next would shake the status quo in climbing. It all happened on what would become an all-time classic route, which climbers from around the world now come to do, epinephrine.
0: So Black Velvet is one of the more striking canyons in Red Rock. And when you walk back into the canyon, the wall that epinephrine goes up is, is just, it's just a, I mean, it's a 2000 foot wall. It's just striking. I mean, it's the same scale as, as the walls in Yosemite. So it's a really impressive piece of stone split by some very clear features. You know, epinephrine ascends to the top of this big, giant white tower and then goes up this huge corner system to the top of the wall. And so you can see the line. And you can see how big the wall is, and you're just like, whoa, that's that's an impressive feature. And and really, it's, it seems pretty daunting from a distance because it's just so big and sheer. You know, it turns out that there are these incredibly in-cut holds almost the whole way up, except for the chimney systems for which the route is famous.
3: So, yeah, so epinephrine became the turning point where we developed this technique. We wanted to climb the big face, so we, we climbed Joe Herp's route, which was the, called the original route on Velvet Wall, which required... Some very ballsy and strenuous crack climbing up the Black Tower. So the crack pitches up to the top of the Black Tower. I led them, and
0: including the chimneys.
3: Oh yeah, no, I was a chimney expert. I was a crack climbing, a good crack climber. I remember one time there was like one piece of gear in the whole whole pitch. It it was uh, pretty stressful. There's this beautiful crack system straight up. So. You know, it's just like so obvious to climb the Black Tower and then go for the big crack system up there. And that's when we started learning our system of fixing ropes and pre-rigging the faces that required some bolts.
2: The summer of 1978, they spent six weeks camping in Black Velvet Canyon, sleeping at the base and ascending their ropes to push the route higher once it would go into the shade in the afternoon. They were developing the essence of the same system that Mikey Schaefer would use on Father Time decades later.
3: I hated drilling. George would be the main driller because I was not really that good at drilling. The
0: only way to drill a bolt into the rock is to either find a good enough foothold that you can stand there, no hands, or place a hook onto a small edge and then and then basically clip yourself into the metal hook and that allows you to take your hands off the rock and and then do some drilling
3: so it takes a a coordinated swing so you're developing lactic acid and extreme pain in your forearm and all of this is happening while you're under stress maybe dehydrated with the heat
0: when you place a hook you know you look at it and the hook flexes and you're like oh geez i hope the hook's not going to break and then you see the rock flex, and you're like, "Oh, I hope the rock's not going to break." Because especially if you're doing a new route, nobody's ever pulled on that edge before, so who knows how solid it is.
3: And you're drilling hole after hole after hole.
0: It does feel like a bit of a time bomb. You're like, "Oh, the hook's going to blow. I'm going to get ripped off the wall with the drill half in." You know, like the drill bit is going to be stuck in the hole. Like it's all—it all feels like it's going to be a disaster. And whether or not it, it all blows or not, you still feel that strain the whole time. Like you're—you're you're basically always on edge.
3: And it's, it's insane. Most people couldn't take it.
0: My very first time coming to Red Rock, I that solid epinephrine. And, you know, I mean, it's a really long time ago now, so I don't totally remember, but I just remember being blown away by the, the edges on the upper wall. I mean, like, is this for real? Like, you know, I'd only ever experienced things like that in the gym. And I always thought the gym holds were were just artificial. You know, they're just made up. I was like, things like this can't exist in nature. And then you get up high, you know, 1,500 feet off the ground on epinephrine. And you're grabbing these edges that that feel like fantasy holds. You know, you're like, how could it possibly be such a good hold? <laughs> you know, like, it's crazy. And you're looking, you know, at crazy sandstone canyons in, in both directions. You know, you you feel like you're pretty far out there. Which is funny because you can still see. The road. I mean, you can see Vegas in the distance, you know, you can like see casinos, you can see, you know, millions of tourists down on the strip doing their thing, and yet you still feel incredibly isolated. It's just, I mean, it's really something that you have to climb to, to really appreciate. I mean, it's just incredible climbing.
3: That was kind of feather in my cap for the time, and I was proud of that.
2: Epinephrine was a masterpiece. They were developing their own style, their own aesthetic that was uniquely suited to their beloved Red Rock. This process resulted in an incredible number of routes from 400 to 2,000 feet high in the 5'7 to 5'11 range. But in the eyes of climbing's intellectual establishment, they were doing it all wrong.
3: If you're going to examine the social structure of human beings, they do tend to organize themselves into Certain ideological groups, and this can be seen in many ways, political parties, religions, nationalities, etc, and even um, climbing philosophies when we left pitons behind, then these engineering types uh, these these brain, brainiac men who dominated the climbing circle kind of uh, went uh, into the background, and now you had these very very brave and ballsy guys who would climb things like the apron in Yosemite. So you had these kind of like climbing gangs that had alpha leaders in like the seventies, early eighties, like the top climbers of the day were interested in boldness and control. So you couldn't afford any type of falling any type of tension, you had to be under control, and you had to run it out. So it was almost like free soloing because they would run it out so much that, you know, 100 foot, 200 foot falls were possible. We have never really followed uh, the trend of the masses. We've always had our own perspective on things. And the fact that, George and I even put like a couple of bolts on some of our roots was a very, very bad thing. We were considered very evil, and we were hated by many of the people in California. So no problem. Let us have the garbage pile. We'll be happy with the garbage of climbing, and then all 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 of all of the real climbers can go to Yosemite and we'll be fine here alone
0: Is that really how you felt about Red Rock at the time?
3: Yes. Yes.
2: Life moved forward. The 70s gave way to the 80s. Climbing grew. Vegas grew. People started showing up in Red Rock. The Bolt issue grew so toxic, it broke the broader climbing community into two and nearly destroyed climbing in America, which we'll learn a little bit more about later in the season. The Uriastis had children. Joanne stepped back from climbing, but she missed the adventure. And she missed the creativity.
0: We'll be back after the break. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Wood Barrel Bourbon Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I choose. They're offering new customers 20% off any purchase with the code CLIMBINGGOLD. Or you can go to drsquatch.com slash Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean.
3: After one year of not climbing, some kind of like internal drive started getting so strong that I actually started ultra distance running. And that was also in an in an era when ultra distance running was through wilderness, unsupported.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're we're both just like, (laughs) of course. I mean, why wouldn't you? It it seems like a. But it's it's
3: it's like applying all that like adventure, and it's also risk management and nature. So you're having this like extreme spiritual feeling of being immersed in nature. I, I would do runs where if I if my um if my calculations were off, I would die. I had I had to have that part in my run. Except the, the organized runs obviously wouldn't have that.
0: Who who are you? I'm like, what <laughs> who who needs their runs to be life or death?
3: Well you, well Alex, how about you? <laughs>
2: While Joanne raised her kids climbing at Red Rock, not only took off, the trash heap that the California climbers had derided became a world-class destination. The 80s gave way to the 90s. Climbers established thousands of bolted climbs there. The loose rock stripped away with the traffic. Today, land managers estimate that over 200,000 climbers visit Red Rock every year. Whether you are climbing 5.7 or 5.11, a curiosity route is likely on your tick
3: list. I, I got out of climbing for 10 years when I had my kids. And when I got back into climbing, it was 1996, and I went and climbed epinephrine, and I said, holy shit, I can't, there's no loose rock on this. I can, just, I can just reach up and pull on anything. My climbing partner said, oh, your roots are classic now. I was, I was like super shocked. It, it felt like a gym that was just gigantic and out there in, in the canyons. I realized that in a couple decades, I'm not going to be here anymore. It gives me a huge amount of happiness to give some happiness to others.
0: Is it still as fun for you now?
3: Yeah, it is. Um, It's slightly different. It's more calculating because since the body is not like 100%, we have all these injuries we have to manage. You have to be very smart about your goals. When we were young, it felt like the body was, it was endless, it was boundless. Your, Your physical strength was without end. Just like we thought that the desert solitude was without end. We thought that like the vast solitude of Red Rock was intact and would always be eternal but the physical prowess of a person is not eternal. Some climbers choose not to climb when they get older, some can't climb, and there are just a few that actually still do climb, but in a very calculated way. Yeah, I rely on um, younger people to do some of the harder leading and also to carry some more of the weight, but I'm using my ideas
0: but so how have you maintained the passion for it for so long
3: i don't put effort into maintaining the passion (laughs) the passion is me
0: so alex what do you make of all this what uh, yeah what an incredible woman what a I mean, what, what do you call Joanne? I mean, she's it's just it's just so. It's like badass, you know. <laughs> I know, but but badass is like sort of under uh, underselling it for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I feel like calling her badass. You're like, yeah. Well, that's that's sort of the simple. I don't know that that just doesn't feel like enough because yeah. what makes Joanne so incredible is just how unique she is. I mean, how she's followed totally her own path in such an incredible way. It's like it's like yeah, she's badass, but she's also you know kind of a visionary in her own way yeah so, she's an original i think is yeah i know she is i mean yeah she's an original that's 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 really the term i'm always
2: surprised when i talk to to older climbers who live through that period of time um about how contentious the subject of style got the idea of clean climbing it started from this like really good place of wanting to preserve this resource and then it just
0: completely metastasized into something really ugly so an interesting thought about climbing ethics is that, you know, in the U.S. especially, people have always tried to avoid bolts, tried to avoid too many holes in the rock, all that kind of thing. But, but I, I have two main thoughts on this. One is that if you're avoiding bolting or basically avoiding having an impact on the rock because of the environmental impact. It is a little bit absurd because, you know, your biggest impacts as a climber come from driving to the crag and and basically hiking the trail into the base of the crag. Like whether or not there's a bolt in the rock or, or whether or not you're you're placing cams, none of that really matters compared to the real impacts that you're having. I'm all about leaving as little of a trace as possible, but I just think that it's important to to keep a perspective on on where the impacts in your life are.
2: You know, Joanne and George, they were basically going against the status quo, against mainstream climbing, which was locked really into a sort of dead end. Like that must have taken some guts to just kind of be like, whatever.
0: You know, it's turned out to be very forward thinking. You know, it's basically they put up futuristic routes. They put up routes that have remained incredibly popular far into the future. They were applying the sport climbing mindset to walls before that was a thing. And and so that actually leads me to my other point about climbing ethics and and adventure is that the thing about, you know, bickering about style and bolts and, and root development and all that is that if you want more of an adventure, you can always go have the adventure that you want. You know, like we're talking about the Uriosti routes in Red Rock, and they're all super popular, buffed in chalk, lots of people climbing them. But I'm climbing those routes by myself all the time. And it still feels relatively adventurous. You know, like if you want it to be more exciting, climb, climb it on gear. You know, skip the bolts. Like if if you're offended by the bolts, don't clip them. Like who cares? I'm curious what your perspective
2: on what role the the scary run out routes, um, things like you know Southern Bell on Half Dome or Hall of Mirrors on on in Yosemite. Um, they they are not popular. They seldom get done. But um, what do you think? What purpose do routes like that serve today?
0: There are plenty of routes out there. That are famous for being bold and extreme. I, I, I do think it's important to have some routes like that because they're inspirational in a certain way, or sort of aspirational in a certain way. They're things that you're like, "Oh, I'd like to aspire to that at some point." But the reality is that that we all climb normal routes, you know, day in and day out. You want to go out and just climb something that you, that you can actually climb safely. I mean, and that's why most people boulder, and that's why most people sport climb, and and why most people climb in a gym. That said there should exist the wild adventure routes because every once in a while you do want to have a wild adventure but uh, yeah i don't know i mean that's the interesting thing with the whole clean climbing ethic is that taken to its extreme it makes climbing much less accessible but taken in in a in small moderation you're kind of like yeah it does leave these beautiful test pieces for people to be inspired by
2: like how many times have you done epinephrine
0: (laughs) yeah uh yeah i don't know 15 20 yeah And like, would you ever go back and do Southern Bell or one of those? Actually, the the best comparison might be the yeah, which is actually a really fun route and really a beautiful route and really, you know, accessible grade. I mean, it's rated 11C. Uh, You know, if it was in a gym, you'd warm up on it. And yet, because there's no protection on it and it's really, really serious. And if you break a little knob, you're going to break both your legs. Like I climbed it once. I felt like I got away with it. I was very happy to have climbed it. And now I'll never touch it again. And it's kind of a waste of this beautiful piece of rock because if there were... You know, it doesn't even have to be sport bolted, but if there were just a couple more bolts on that route and you could call it even marginally safe, then, you know, you might repeat it from time to time. But instead, it's like a full-on quest every... You know, if you go up there.
2: You just retouched on, on the clean climbing ethos. You know, a lot of rules and rigid dogma sprang out of that thinking. Do you think... Do you think it ended up stifling... Creativity in progress
0: in American climbing. Yeah, I, I totally agree that all the, the ethical and, and sort of you know moral factors around climbing are are silly. Nowadays it seems like the only real rules in climbing are to be honest about what you do and leave no trace, basically. You know, don't alter the rock, try not to destroy anything in in the process of climbing. And you know i i think those sort of simple guidelines are better you know beyond that just go out and have an experience and and uh, you know see where your comedy takes you you know in that
2: era at the time uh the you know 1970s early 80s the the traditionalists the sort of old guard you know they were they were worried about our sport that you know the it was getting bigger there was concern that sport was losing its way and becoming too easy too safe and it kind of cracks me up because I think that some of those are the same exact conversations um, people or I'm hearing out in the community today. Um, it's, it's very analogous. I definitely hear climbers, you know, my age say things like, oh, well, I'm not sure you could be a climber if you don't climb outdoors or, you know, that. But doesn't... that, I
0: think, is the danger it, when you're trying to keep climbing as what you want it to be. I think that's a dangerous position to be taking you know, like if you love the adventure of climbing and you want it to stay adventurous because you want everybody to have that same experience, I think that's a, I think that's a dangerous position, you know, because people should be able to have whatever experience they want in climbing. And, and the reality is that most people want to have a pleasant, a pleasant experience. You know, most people don't want to be scared out of their mind the whole day. They don't want to think that they're about to die. They don't want to be wondering if they're off route or, you know, if something terrible is about to happen, they just want to go out and have a good time. It's like if you demand that someone have
2: the same exact experience as you or that they have to do it the same exact way, eventually you're going to be on the losing side of that argument.
0: Totally. Yeah, you're definitely on the wrong side of history if you want other people to do exactly what you did.
2: Thanks so much, Joanne, for sharing your story. Climbing Gold is a production of Duck Tape Than Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. This episode was written and edited by me, Fitzgerald. Music today by Brendan O'Connell, Amy Stolzenbach, and Cordelia Zars, who also collaborated with me on original pieces and helped edit and mix this episode. Art direction by Anya Miller. It was recorded at... Oh, man. It was, like, recorded at closets and vans all across the West Coast, during the pandemic, audio engineering was done by Zoom and the voice memo app on iPhones. Pretty sweet. Our senior producer is Elizabeth Nakano. Psyched to have her back on the team. Our executive producers from Duct Tape Than Beer are Lisey Hendricks and Becca Cahal. And from RxR Sports, Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy. You can follow us on Instagram at Duct Tape Than Beer or Alex Honnold. Follow us on Spotify to listen for free or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please spread the word. Write us a review on Apple's or iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.